0: Hi, this is the Reverend Andrew Christensen. You're listening to Doth Protest Too Much. We are a Christ-centered, reformationally-minded podcast that explores the history and theology of the Christian Church. This podcast originally started as a forum for discussing the developmental history of Christian thought, what is often called historical theology, and it has since grown into an ecumenical team of hosts, myself, Stephen Burnett, Pastor Charlie Lehman, and the Reverend James Rickenbaker. We're all interested in the past, present, and future of the Church. We share a commitment to the central place that grace has in the message of the good news, a message we feel often gets lost in our day and age, sometimes in religion itself. A message that is of God's goodwill toward us as echoed in the following words from St. Paul. This is a true saying, and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief one. I pray that the discussions in our episodes, whether casual or scholarly, can speak to how the story and witness of Christians from our past can comfort and strengthen us for today. God bless. again thanks for tuning in to doth protest too much Protestant historical theology podcast i want to thank um our listeners our episode, our episodes have been uh getting some more hits more downloads uh, and it's it's exciting to see a uh, steady but sure uh, cl- uh climb in our listenership and so Uh, thank you for checking us out. I'm currently recording. Uh, it's been a couple weeks since our last episode. I want to thank again, Dr. Jack Hilcrease who came on our last episode. If you haven't checked that episode out, uh, for our listeners, it is uh, called, uh, I just blanked on the title. Oh, blood with the Pope or wine with the enthusiasts. So, um, and if you're wondering what that title even means, I encourage you just to go listen to that episode and, uh, you'll hear all about the, uh, inter-reformational debates of the 16th century, especially in regards to beliefs on Holy communion, how Martin Luther, and another Reformer, Ulrich Zwingli, differed on that belief and how those differences actually pan out uh, in the different traditions or even denominations that descend really from the teachings of those uh, different strands of the Reformation, as well as how is it how it affects uh, the broader theologies of each of those Reformers. It was a very fascinating episode, and this, this is October, uh, which is our Luther month, and so we're dedicating um, our episodes of this month to the life and thought of Martin Luther. I am cheating a little bit because, um, uh, we have, we will have another episode coming shortly after this one. Um, I'm and where I will be offering a reflection on my, uh, visit to the, or my taking part in the conference for EFAC USA. EFAC stands for Evangelical Fellowship in the Anglican Communion. And, um, I'm currently in Dallas right now, recording from Dallas. I'm staying at an Airbnb because uh, I'm uh, just attended day one of that of that conference. Um, so yeah, I'm actually recording in the closet of this Airbnb. It's one of those BNBs um, that it's it's a room with a bathroom, but <laughs> it's several rooms that kind of share a middle space kitchen. I guess anyone can use. And I'm not used to staying in BNBs quite like that but my wife, Rachel's not with me. And so, um, you know, it's all fine. <laughs> uh, you know, I can, uh, as long as I have a bed to lay on and a, and a bathroom of my own, I, I do like having a bathroom of my own for, for these types of stays, these types of visits. So, um, but yes, I'm looking forward to the rest of the conference. And so look forward to our uh, episode that will soon follow this one in several days. I have a good feeling about uh this conference i've met some several uh, great people um some who i only knew online or from social media who i have seen now in the flesh i have seen in person and so that excites me to get to know some of these folks uh, as well as some folks i personally knew already uh, as well as a Cramner scholar dr ashley Noll, who is uh, uh visiting in the conference and speaking for it so and uh, who actually will, is interested in being on the podcast. So I, of course, went and asked him to be on it. So as his area of scholarship pertains really to the subject matter of this podcast, so it would be very fitting to have him on the show. And so we look forward to that in the near future. Uh, but anyways, on to our episode today. Before we get started, I do want to encourage you if you are listening to this on Apple podcasts or another streaming service just to go ahead and give us a uh, five star one star review. However, you honestly feel we respect all opinions. Well, not all opinions, but we uh, well, we welcome all opinions (laughs) and feedback. And so uh, please do that. And so Today's episode is on a very fascinating topic, and one that's been explored, um, but not uh, but not a whole lot. Uh, but there is definitely scholarship out there generally about this, and it was based on research I did for my own coursework not long ago that I sort of pieced together, uh, as well as some other coursework I did broadly just on the book of Revelation, which gets me to this specific topic. This episode is on... Martin Luther, his relationship with the Book of Revelation, uh and his interpretation of the Book of Revelation, and how um well, we'll get into it. It's very fascinating. I uh it's um I brought it up to a couple people on the past ep- on a past episode. Oh, I brought it up to Dr. Michael Metz from several episodes. And he said, Oh my gosh, that sounds like a really fascinating topic. I said, uh, yeah, it'll be have to be a topic for another episode. Half jokingly, but here it is. We're doing an episode on it. So Michael, if you're out there, uh, looking, uh, looking forward to maybe your thoughts on this. So uh, happy to be doing this episode. So I'm alone today, no guest, uh, but we'll of course have guests on in the future. And this will also, uh, connect to an episode we are going to have on in, in November on the topic of millennialism and more i guess more recent understandings and interpretations of the book of revelation uh, but really we're kind of staying with the 16th century today so anyways on to our episode so the book of revelation um, it's one of the it's one of those books that gets a lot of uh, sensational attention i guess <laughs> uh, understandably the book of revelation uh, contains an exceptional amount of theological symbolism and imagery in its pages. And uh, unlike most writings in scripture, Revelation belongs to the apocalyptic genre. Uh, there's apocalyptic uh, themes throughout all of scripture. And indeed, if we really take read the words closely of Jesus, especially in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus speaks very apocalyptically. Now, I'm a school teacher of well, used to be middle school students and now middle and high school, sort of. Well eighth and ninth grade I sorry, eighth and ninth grade I primarily teach. And they always have quite if there's any questions about the Bible, they often have questions maybe about apocalypse or the book of Revelation, end times. What does it mean? How do they make sense of it all, right? Well, of course, not all the questions are easy to answer. <laughs> As you can imagine, most young people don't Pose question. They pose questions that are really begging for an answer that can satisfy the these questions. But um, often it, it's more often than not, it's an opportunity for some um, interesting exploration. So, but yes, revelation belongs to apocalyptic genre. It is heavily apocalyptical. And uh, there are a variety of ways in which the book of Revelation has been approached and interpreted regarding its relationship or lack thereof to time and the actual world. And um, there's been different approaches. And our later episode in November that I briefly mentioned, will get into some of the more recent, like last 200 to 250 years. But this one will focus on the 16th century. But some uh, leading up to the 16th century, I'm going to give a kind of a brief survey of how Revelation has been interpreted. One famous approach was preterism. Now, preterism uh, goes back really to the days of the early church. And it's a view that the symbols and images of Revelation um, are really a betrayal of the Roman Empire of the author's day. So, running in the context of Rome's domineering imperial power in the late first century. Um, Rome largely had a hostile attitude toward the Christian church, this church which began to arise out of this movement that began within the first century. And John's images that he employs in his writing represent earthly forces of his day, which he then allegorizes, basically. So really, this is a idea that these symbols directly relate to something that was going on. Um, Many modern scholars may prefer this approach entirely in a way that excludes any reading of these symbols, uh, as additionally pointing to general conditions that involve other contexts outside of the one that the book was written in. And that's kind of my problem with a strict preterist approach. I don't doubt for a second, and I know I'm getting into my own personal views, but I don't doubt for a second that these symbols very much correspond to imperial and earthly, um, forces, I guess, (laughs) um, of that time, but there's more to it. Like all scripture, it's timeless. It speaks to us in all times and places. And additionally, scholars who read revelation from a purely secular standpoint today and in a fashion that they would study any other literature, sometimes they'll kind of take their own kind of preterist approach. And that's kind of the error that I mentioned a moment ago, where I think it kind of reduces Revelation to something that it's, um, that it, I don't want to say that it's not, but it's more than this, though. So, uh, one such good book, for instance, uh, one of the best books on Revelation, other than I'm talking about, not the book of Revelation, I'm talking about secondary sources now, Richard Bauckham, who's a theologian and a Bible scholar, wrote a book called The Theology of the Book of Revelation, that's an example of a commentary that carries an overt degree of preterist approach. Um, but he doesn't exhaust this approach um, to the reductionist end, which sees Revelation as just a time-conditioned literature, and I applaud him for that. Bauckham's a great scholar. Uh, he's done some monumental work in New Testament studies. Um, some people challenge it, but basically arguing for the Gospels and, and uh, much of the narrative literature of the Bible too really be, um, well, especially the gospels to be really eyewitness testimony, um, kind of reacting against or responding to, um, decades of scholarship that didn't see it quite as that. So, but for Balkam, understanding revelation is John's presentation and critique of imperial power is an absolute essential to understanding revelation at all. And with that, I would definitely agree Um, but he even goes as far as to say in the book, quote, it would be a serious mistake to understand the images of revelation as timeless symbols. Um, so, but again, I, even with him saying that, I don't think he, uh, I I think he, he says that, but then he goes on to write of revelation, really having a timeless aspect as well. (laughs) So, um, but, anyways, there's that approach. There is a futurism approach, which I'll now present. Uh, futurism is the approach of viewing revelation as describing future events; um, hence, the name futurism. This does not mean merely that there will be an actual end, and um, th- this does not merely mean that there will be an actual end in eschaton. Other approaches can share this basic belief. So, that, what I'm saying is that's not all this means. <clears throat> but for futurism, the events as described in Revelation will take place as they are described in the order it is described in, uh, that these are uh, literal events in, in a sense that uh, the way it is laid out in Revelation is the way it will play out. Now, there may be some variance in how the order will pan out, but there nevertheless is an order. Um Futurists may also differ in how they view the images and events manifesting in these future events. Nevertheless, they will manifest, and so uh, futurism is very much an active approach in groups of churches even today. Uh, but it is a an approach that's um, uh, been it, it has precedence in earlier church history. <clears throat> so while it may or may not be the dominant view, it most certainly is. The most vocal and organized view and is for instance a popular media literature version of this in recent years Well, I guess not so recent because they're about 25 years old now, but the left behind book series, um Which is I guess Uh sort of relevant still today. They did a film version with nicholas cage. I believe in the past five years Uh, I didn't see it. Um I uh, i'd rather watch con air again because con air is a great movie and uh (laughs) or lots of other good movies Nicolas Cage has been in. So anyways, uh, I'm going to take a drink of my water real quick. Uh, If this makes the final edit, you'll have a brief moment of silence for me to do that. Okay, so now we're going to get into the historicist approach, and this will be our segue into our discussion on Luther. So historicism is the approach to revelation where the reader has a strong sense that his or her own time fits somewhere in the sequence of, of the, these events in revelation that revelation is prophetic and it's speaking, uh, really to this time. Um, it doesn't necessarily involve a very literalist interpretation of the events as described in the prophetic visions of the book of revelation. Um, Calculation has been involved in this interpretation to pinpoint when and if certain events from the book's prophecies have been fulfilled or not. Um, And there's a a large degree of this approach in Martin Luther. Um, This was based both on his uh, view of revelation and also on general apocalyptic imagery found throughout scripture. Um, So... But Luther was not so much concerned with calculating the end times as he was convinced that the end of the temporal world was near. He had a, an apocalyptic viewpoint that is uh, that developed over the course of his life, um, and is due in large part to the level of uh, that he he saw the devil at work in the world. He um, because he saw himself up against um, uh, a great foe that seemingly bigger than him that could swallow him whole. Of course, we're talking about, yes, the church, the corrupted churches he saw in his days, as well as just general things going on in the social and political world at that time, uh, which we'll get into in this. Um, so he, his, he had a lot of opponents <laughs> in his time. And so he, that only, um, that only helped or that only, sorry, contributed uh, to his very uh, apocalyptic view outlook that he had, so but we'll be getting into that. So let's rewind a little bit. Well, we didn't. We're not really rewinding. We just kind of gave a general overview of Luther's attitude, but it wasn't always this way. It, it just like any uh, when we study any person in the past, especially a thinker, um, we have to start at a certain point and see how we arrived to another point. And so this is when we'll be getting into Martin Luther. So Luther stayed at Wartburg. need to know how to pronounce that in, a, in a, the German way, not Wartburg. I mean, that's the English way of saying it. Uh, thank you, Rosetta Stone, Babel and Duolingo. And Dr. Mark Grutner, shout out to you, Shreveport Tudor. I don't have his business card info, but if you live in Shreveport, which I don't anymore, but he is a German-born, uh, Ameri- he's an American, but German-born and taught German many years at Centenary College, and he works one-on-one with people interested in learning that awesome, wonderful language, especially if you're a Lutherphile or theology nerd, German can come in handy. So <laughs> I digress. Luther stayed at Wartburg Castle between 1521 and 1522. And this is where Luther translated the New Testament. And what language did he translate it into? Well, German. In addition to this, Luther also took time to uh, explain for his readers of this Testament, this New Testament, what the meaning of the gospel is properly. The gospel is the singular summative message of Christ for us that is found and testified throughout the various literature that comprises the New Testament this definition of the gospel says that Jesus is at the center of the scriptures that all scriptures all the writings of the scriptures are they complement each other they're in this interplay you could say Old Testament included that point to Christ However, for Luther, this did not mean that all the writings in the scriptures were equally vessels of the gospel in its quintessential sense. Luther was actually critical of certain writings that had traditionally been included in the New Testament. Uh, famously, he considered the book of James to be among those that he found little to no warrant for their importance or inclusion, though he ultimately still left them in. One of these writings that Luther was initially unfavorable um, also, besides James, was the Apocalypse of John, and of course, what we mean by that is the Book of Revelation, which from, um, we'll just refer to as Revelation from here on. <laughs> Luther expressed his criticism in a preface he wrote for Revelation in this 1522 New Testament translation. He wrote prefaces to all these books that are in the uh, that are in this New Testament. You know, we'll refer to this testament as the September Testament because he uh, had it was published by September of fifteen twenty-two. Each book of this September Testament rece- uh, received received uh, what Luther scholar Heinrich Bornkem referred to as a quote brief and lively notice of the contents of unquote inserted before each book. One book, for instance. The Epistle to the Romans received a much more in depth commentary as its preface, signifying its importance as quintessential gospel. That's because Romans, being such an important writing from Paul, Luther really famously said, and I don't know where he said it, that Luther found Jesus again through Paul. Or oh, really, it should be, and again, this would be my own words, and I'm sure Luther would agree Christ found Luther again, and he did it through his gospel. As revealed to Paul. I think that'd be the best way to put it. I think our Lutherans would agree with that. Where are our Lutherans at? Go ahead and pat yourself on the back for listening to this Episcopalian's podcast. (laughs) Anyways, uh, this was, uh, anyways, unlike Romans, for Revelation, Luther gave a very brief and rather dismissive treatment of it in the preface for this September Testament. But this would change eventually. By the 1530s, Luther made the interesting move of rewriting two prefaces of this New Testament translation. Um, this is published again. The New Testament translation was published again in, uh, alongside an Old Testament translation. Um, it was a translation of the entire Bible. This is the 1530s. So Luther revisited his translation of the New Testament. He had written just several years before, or really a decade before, but it was a pivotal decade, as we'll see. And he, in effect, revis- revisited Revelation years later to write another preface that was strikingly different from the one in the September Testament. In the this latter preface, Revelation is no longer the peculiar, peculiar writing that offers little value to a Christian, but rather it's an edifying book that speaks to the concrete situations past and present of those both within and outside of the church who suppress the promulgation of the gospel. This raises the question of like, what would explain the change, right? He writes two very different things. Both are addressing the book of Revelation. It's like he's had a change of attitude on it. What explains it? Well, it's not evident that Luther abandoned any of the underlying reasons he held for denying the value to the Revelation in the September Testament. We'll get into those reasons. Um, There is a discernible explanation, though, for the shift from his initial indifference toward it to his, yes, historicist interpretation that characterizes the latter preface. And we will get into why the second preface is historicist, and also, what was what, why he wrote what he did for the first one. So, looking f- first at the first test, the first uh, preface that he wrote for the September Testament in fifteen twenty two, Luther's criticism of Revelation there can be boiled down to two major contentions. He does not see the book as either prophetic or apostolic. Um, for Luther, it's not the former. It's not prophetic because its vision and images bear little resemblance he says with the characteristics of prophecy seen elsewhere in the Bible, namely the Old Testament. Revelation is also not the not a apostolic or he doesn't see it as apostolic because it simply does not teach Christ he thinks. Luther reasons for this judgment on its apost- Luther's reasons for this judgment sorry on this on its apostolicity are twofold. He says, you know, apostolic writings, he reasons, typically speaks of Christ's life in its actuality. And Revelation does not have this. Luther says, quote, for it befits the apostolic office to speak clearly of Christ and his deeds without images and visions, unquote. And in a slight reiteration of that point in Revelation, there is not the character of witness to Christ's words and deeds. Therefore, Luther summarizes the reason for his discomfort with revelation is because Christ is neither taught nor known in it. And that's from his September Testament. Now, the reasons for these two major contentions are largely influenced by central parts of his Theology of Scripture, as it had developed actually up to this point in time some of these key features of his theology can be related to his developing law and gospel hermeneutic, his view of certain writings as antilegomena, and his reservations about allegorical interpretation. antilegomena I'll explain that, means literature in the Bible that um, it's questionable on if it's canonical, but it shouldn't be just downright deemed uncanonical. It holds this gray area, the secondary place. It is not to be prioritized, um, like the, I guess, books and writings that we should not dispute that are belonging to the Bible. So he considers it antilegomena. So his long so what does long gospel mean? Well, as previously mentioned, Luther gave his readers um, a definition of the gospel, the good news, the good news in Jesus Christ. And when Luther first arrived to Warburg, he addressed this topic in a brief commentary on the gospels that, he, that um, would be published and circulated by early 1522. This commentary titled, A Brief Instruction on What to Look For and Expect in the Gospels, made the distinction between the books of the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are commonly titled as gospels, and the gospel, quote, one should realize that there is only one gospel, but that it is described by many apostles, unquote. You see, Luther said this because the one gospel finds its way into the various writings of scripture, importantly, not limited to just the four gospels, I guess you could say gospels with a small g, because the gospel with a capital G, is the message of who Christ is and what he has done for us. And so in the case of the New Testament, the gospel can take the form of the narration of that story, as the evangelists give us, or what the ultimate implications for us are of what Christ's life and work do for us, as, for instance, Paul wrote, and also, to lesser extent, Peter I say that to a lesser extent because Paul wrote a lot more letters. (laughs) So the definition of the gospel that Luther arrived to relatively early on in his career stands in contrast to the longer and more complicated development of his view of the law. The law became more systematized, you could say, in Lutheran theology after Luther's life through things like the formula of Concord and the three uses of the law and whatnot, But by the time of the early 1520s, Luther had an understanding of the law as something that reveals our rebellious wills. The law reveals our sinful nature. The law is good because it does this. It must do this. And it reveals our sinful nature precisely because of the fact that it restrains us. It has use, at least, in this sense. In the brief instruction, Luther worked with the concept of law as represented in the commandments and proscriptions of the Bible, especially as one finds in the books of Moses. He then stressed that the gospel is not, quote, a book of laws and commandments, but of, quote, promises, unquote. He even qualified this by contrasting the tenor and the types of admonishments that can be clearly read from Jesus and other apostolic writings, with the commandments of old. Through the long gospel hermeneutic, or the long gospel way of reading the Bible, uh, this which is such a hallmark of both Luther's, Luther's like later thinking and Lutheranism, had yet to develop further, though it had to develop further, Luther's distinguishing of laws and commandments given to the believer from the promises given to the belie- believer demonstrate that he was working with a basic form of this principle, in the early 1520s, that would later develop into the long gospel way of approaching the Bible. By the end of the September Testament, 1522, Luther's critical principle of the Scriptures being read through the light of Christ's saving work led him to favorably recommend certain writings in the New Testament over others. The go- because the gospel means the clear message of Jesus's saving life, death, and resurrection and the true mark of apostolicity is the communicating of that message, Luther not only showed less favor towards certain writings of the New Testament like Revelation that he believed readers could not extract this message from, but he questions the certainty of their canonical and apostolic status. Luther wrote in this preface, I miss more than one thing in this book of Revelation, and it makes me consider it to be neither apostolic nor prophetic, for it befits the apostolic office to speak clearly of Christ and his deeds, without images and without visions." See here, Luther clearly questions the apostolic status of Revelation and gave his reasoning for it. The New Testament writings of the epistles of James, Jude, and the epistles of the Hebrews received similar treatment from Luther in their prefaces. that kind of makes me sad, by the way, because I love the epistle to the Hebrews. (laughs) Such a beautiful, high Christology writing. And yeah, it's not written by Paul, but it echoes the same thing. Paul's driving home that the, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and how Christ lowered himself to us, lower than the angels. Now he's higher than the angels. He saves us, but I digress. So Luther found the same issue in James that he saw in Revelation. The essence of the gospel, or the summation of Christ and his teachings and deeds, is nowhere to be found in James. And Luther's pretty much right on that. In contrast to the proclamation of the gospel, James did nothing more than drive drive home the law and its works. Basically what Luther said, I paraphrase loosely, but that's what he said about it. Luther applied that hermeneutical principle that he laid out of Long Gospel to James that made the distinction between what is commanded of us and what is promised to us in Christ, finding only the former to be represented in James. So Luther's doubts about certain books were not without precedent. Eusebius, for example, noted similar doubts that some in the early church held about James and several other writings. Eusebius included these books in the category of interlegomena, which we just discussed were books whose canonical status was disputed. Although Eusebius did not include revelation in this category, acceptance of revelations canonist, was not universal in the early church. Um, The division over its acceptance was actually largely uh, between the West and the East, with many in the West accepting it and many in the latter, the East, initially at least, rejecting it. Dionysius of Alexandria was an early example of an Eastern father who doubted apostolic authorship, uh, along with such people as Cyril of Jerusalem and John Chrysostom to follow. Revelation was excluded from the list of canonical books at the Council of Laodicea in the 4th century, and omitted from some Bibles in the East. Robert Mounts, a New Testament scholar, importantly knows that there were uh, historical factors for Revelation's lack of early acceptance in the East. For instance, the Montanist movement of the 2nd through 4th centuries, this was a group that brought on tensions with the wider church for its belief in ongoing prophetic revelation, relied heavily on appropriating Revelation for its extreme flavor of apocalypticism. However, as the position of many in the East began to reverse, notably with Athanasius' endorsement of Revelation and its canonical acceptance at the Third Council of Carthage in 397, an interesting phenomenon took place. Churches of the East largely interpreted Revelation allegorically in contrast to the millennialist approach to Revelation that characterized the Montanist interpretation. Being that early millennialist readings of Revelation lost believability as the Church aged into the middle of the first millennium, the allegorical, spiritualizing approach to Revelation became commonplace in all of the Church. So it's really a historic irony that, like the Eastern Church, Luther was skeptical of Revelation's apostolic authorship. However, Luther's aversion to revelation were in large part based on the fact that they dealt so exclusively with visions and images, something that was not apparently an obstacle, at least least for the later Eastern Church, whose interpretive approach to revelation was precisely based on allegorical potentials of those visions and images. This leads to the last important point about Luther's theological premises that influenced his first preface. So, this next part we're going to get into is on allegorical interpretation. Martin Luther's disregard of writings that deal heavily or exclusively in the visions and images that he articulated in his September Testament preface of 1522 is symptomatic of his general caution against allegorical interpretation that he became known for. However, Luther scholar Eric Kerman makes an important point in regard to this. Dr. Herman says, quote, those who have argued that Luther's theological breakthrough entailed the rejection of allegory must admit that he continues to use it in varying degrees throughout his life. On the other hand, those who have argued for Luther's strong affinity to the traditional method have difficulty explaining Luther's harsh words against allegory, unquote. And this is such a well-put quote because it really captures that Luther was kind of in the middle of some of these two popular inter- uh, approaches to his treatment of allegory. Luther had a complicated relationship with allegory, and it is important to know both why Luther continued to use what Herman refers to as varying degrees of allegory, while at the same time having, quote, harsh words about it. Taking this into account greatly helps in understanding how Martin Luther could potentially write two prefaces within the course of his life that appear so different from each other. Allegorical interpretation has been a traditional approach to Scripture all throughout the Church's history. It gained greater ascendancy, however, in figures such as Augustine and Origen, both of whom took note that a lot of Scriptural content expresses a message figuratively. Origen would go as far as to, to make an analogy between scriptures and two human beings in that both the Bible and people possess both a concrete body and a spirit or soul. In other words, the scriptural text may have a straightforward meaning, but also a secondary meaning. By the time of the Middle Ages, allegorical interpretation became incorporated into the commonly called fourfold method of interpretation that became dominant in the Middle Ages. Deriving the straightforward meaning, then the allegorical meaning, the tropical meaning, or what moral message can be derived from the text, and the anagogical meaning. I always mispronounce that. And this is how the text relates and points to the heavenly culmination of the eschaton so this fourfold approach and there were those however in the early church who did not favor excessive allegorizing of scripture john chrysostom who coincidentally was an early example of a revelation skeptic as previously mentioned belonged to what is called the the antiochian school that primarily looked primarily looked for the intended straightforward meaning in the, in the text, while allowing for occasional restrained allegorical interpretation, provided that the latter did not obscure the straightforward intent of the author. This approach is strikingly similar to the general interpretive approach of the reformers years later. It especially bears a strong resemblance to the position that Martin Luther arrived to in his mid-career. In a table talk dating to around the summer or fall of 1532, Luther recalled that he often used allegorical interpretive methods in his younger years. He says, quote, I allegorize everything, even a chamber pot, unquote, he remarked there, perhaps overstating. Luther then identified that his coming to some knowledge of Christ through his reading of Romans was the turning point when he abandoned allegorical reading and embraced an understanding of Scripture as a vessel in which the reader encounters Christ passively. Or as one Lutheran theologian would put it, the Scripture drives Christ home, That's Oswald Bayer, by the way, who said that. In October of 1540, Luther would once again recall his journey out of allegorical interpretation that he used as a young man In a table talk recorded by Johann Mathesius, Luther described the way he would allegorically translate scripture in his early years as the tomfoolery of a younger man who is looking to impress. As an older and more mature man, he put forth the literal or plain sense reading of scripture as the humble way of approaching scripture in in which one will find life, comfort, power instruction and skill for him or herself rather than making a brilliant impression out of their interpretation. So in other words, in allegorical interpretation, scripture is pacified with the interpreter being the bearer of truth. While in the plain sense of scripture, the scripture is as active as the vessel of God's word, the vessel of Christ. These remarks from Luther recorded in those two table talks signify his more developed theology he made frequent arguments against allegorical interpretation during this later part of his life but this raises the question of why in a second preface to revelation that luther writes in this same general period the 1530s did he give a much more considerate read of a writing written with allegory What's up with that? Was Luther ultimately ambivalent about allegory? Tracing Luther's relationship with allegory throughout his career actually offers an explanation to these questions. It was not so much the use of allegory either in scripture or in interpreting it, but the misuse of allegory that concerned Martin Luther. Luther into his later career, did not deny that there are other senses of scripture that can be derived, such as through the previously mentioned fourfold method. He became disillusioned, however, with allegorical interpretation mainly due to the fashion in which it was employed in common parts of the medieval church, and as it had been employed by some in the early church, like Origen. For Luther, allegory is appropriate in some cases and not in others. Scott H. Hendricks, a Luther scholar, points out that Luther had no issue with the use of allegory to help illustrate points and teachings as long as they didn't fashion so much the point or teaching. After all, did not Jesus use parables as illustrations? Also, There is a lot of metaphor and figurative language used by the scriptural authors themselves to illustrate or to expound meaning on things that have a concrete basis. By 1519, Luther circumscribed acceptable allegory to mean metaphorical language within the text itself, rather than, as Hendricks says, a spiritual or figurative meaning imposed on the text from the outside. From that point onward, Luther embraced the plain-sense reading and literal interpretation, unless engagement with allegory was inevitable because of it being in the text itself. There are two things to note about this development. One, Revelation serves as the example of the exception to the rule when engagement with allegory could not be avoided. And two, the reader of Scripture is now the passive recipient of God's word, rather than someone imposing fanciful meaning upon scripture. So now let's go to the 1530, the 1530s preface. The Lutheran historical theologian, Philip D.W. Cray, described Luther's 1530 preface as more evangelical than exegetical. Well, what do we mean by this? Well, in other words, Luther was concerned more in this preface with presenting what sense of the gospel message can be derived from Revelation than with merely giving the reader an expository summary of it. Interestingly, Luther was driven by the same concern he had in his preface of the first test, the first preface for the September Testament, that the gospel message, or Christ, can be revealed in Scripture in a non obscure way. This time around, however, Luther will not dismiss Revelation as having no value in regard to this, but rather he would find value in it for the sake of the gospel. But in order to do so, he would have to take a certain interpretive license. Luther essentially gave a historicist interpretation of Revelation's core content in this 1530 preface. And forgive me for my listeners. I think I may have uh, referred to this second preface as the 1535 preface. It's the 1530, 1530, the year 1530 that he wrote this at least. Historicism, of course, going back to what we just discussed as a reminder, um, it's a certain way of interpreting revelation. The reformers um, were very warm to it as well as people before them. Um, mostly outdated approach today, uh, but there's no one strict historicist way. It's this kind of a label historians, church historians looking back at um, methods of the past, put a label on it. Timothy Weber, for instance, defined historicism in the following way, quote, This approach interprets Revelation as a prophetic overview of church history. Historicist interpreters locate themselves on the prophetic timeline so that they can determine which prophecies have already been fulfilled and which ones are still to come, unquote. So, you know, due to the ascendancy of the allegorical approach to Revelation by the middle of the first millennium and its domination by the time of the medieval church, the way for the historicist approach became naturally paved. There were general apocalyptic tones of the Middle Ages, undoubtedly influenced by the events of the period, You had the Black Plague, for instance. Uh, You had wars. The right conditions were there for Christendom's thinkers to relate concrete, contemporaneous events to the prophetic visions of the Bible's apocalyptic material. Such an example of this approach can be found in the writings of Joachim of Fury. Joachim found himself in a much different time than the first century author of the Book of Revelation, (laughs) uh, or even Augustine in the fourth century, for that matter. John, who wrote Revelation and Augustine, looked at an unknown future. However, Joachim stood in a different point in history where there had been the history of the church to serve as a frame of reference. Having this history at his disposal, Joachim saw, as historian E. Randolph Daniel puts it, history as moving through purifying catastrophes from one stage to a better one, unquote. Through this elaborate schema, that he imposed on his reading of Revelation, Joachim correlated events of general history with Revelation's symbols and visions. Similarly, Martin Luther brought an approach to Revelation in his 1530 preface that sought to use history up till his point in a time as a frame of reference, in a way similar to Joachim. Quote, We consider that the first and surest step toward finding Revelation's interpretation is to take from history the events and the disasters that have come upon Christendom till now and hold them up alongside these images and so compare them carefully, unquote, said Luther. Luther, interestingly then, conceded that such an approach may not be sure, but at least be unobjectionable. Luther especially used this approach in his treatment of Revelations chapters 7 through 13. For Luther, the content of the visions mentioned in those chapters find their parallels in specific people and movements within the church's history since the days soon after the apostles. In an interesting interpretation, Luther sees the four adversarial winds mentioned in Revelation 7 verse 1 that four angels placed at four corners of the world are to hold back, that these winds are actually angelic beings themselves, but evil angels, interestingly enough. In another interesting interpretive move, Luther conflates these four evil angels with the four angels of Revelation 7, the second part of verse 2, who have been given power to harm the earth, Despite that, a natural reading could render that this latter group were actually the other set of four angels whom Luther referred to as good, mentioned <laughs> 7 verse 1. But regardless, Luther then interprets these four angels to be four of the seven angels mentioned in chapters 8 through 13 that unleash different plagues upon the earth. While it is interesting to see the novelty of this interpretation, it's Our interest really uh, will be best served in the parallels that Luther draws between these seven angels and the certain historic and contemporaneous figures. Luther locates a manifestation of each of these plague-unleashing angels on a historic timeline, along with a rationale for it. The first angel is 2nd century theologian uh, Tatian, because of his works righteousness, Luther said. The second angel became manifest in the famous heretic Marcion, along with heretical movements such as the and Manichaeans, because they, quote, Luther says, extol their own spirituality above all scriptures, unquote. The third angel is Origen who, quote, corrupted, unquote, scriptures with philosophy. The fourth is third-century rigorous, novacious for his self-righteousness. The fifth and sixth, Luther says, are Arius and Muhammad for their false teachings. The seventh and final angel is not paralleled with any one figure by his work or what the angel unleashes. The two beasts of Revelation 13, verse 11, which find their parallel in might be a surprise, or maybe not, the papacy and the papal empire. Luther's utilization of revelations, content, had a clear aim, an evangelical aim. Through his identifying of destructive agents with people in actual history, within and outside of the church, whom he views as enemies to the gospel, Luther is driving home the point that this was an evangelical uh, preface that Philip Cray made that we mentioned a moment ago. So the 1530 preface is a piece of evangelical polemic, really written in order to, to promote the evangelical message. Now it's outside of the scope uh, of us really to render judgment or conclude the rightness or wrongness of Luther's move in taking this interpretive license that he did, But what is important here is to show that like in how he addressed addressed many issues at different points in his life, the contradictory statements and traits that come to a fore in the study of Luther point to how shifting external circumstances either elicited different responses from him, depending on the situation, or influenced further consideration of a particular topic. I think it's important to generously read Luther in this way. You know, there's a famous legend about Martin Luther's stay at Warburg Castle going back to 1521 and 1522, where he encountered the devil. Today, in fact, tourists who go to the castle can see a stain on the wall where Luther allegedly threw an inkwell to ward off the devil's attempts of thwarting Luther's labors in the promotion of the gospel. Historians are understandably skeptical of such an incident ever taking place. The scholars of Luther and his thought know that a real sense of an active and looming devil pervaded Luther's view of the world. This sense of the devil relates to Luther's general apocalyptic outlook that would become more pronounced at different points in his life. For Luther, there are forces at work in the world, and especially in the church that's at war with the gospel, the church of his day as he saw it. And the church in its history is essentially the saga of this battle. And as tensions escalated in consequence of the Reformation, Luther saw his own time as a pivotal, perhaps even penultimate, chapter in this saga. The apocalypse may be soon in Luther's mind. Luther's apocalyptic worldview amidst the backdrop of the 16th century Europe has been covered by a broad swath of scholarship. Luther scholar Oswald Bayer says that the following about this exceptionally unstable political context that Luther lived in, in a certain sense, the 16th century was an apocalyptic time. Apocalyptic is not so much a question about chronology as it is of the quality of the era. In virtually no other age since the great dramatic migrations from the fourth to the sixth century after Christ was order in Europe endangered as it was then, externally by Turkish wars, internally by peasants' wars, and split because of various confessional groups. Luther could not conceive the possibility that settled and less apocalyptic times would follow once again. Unquote. That's a brilliant, insightful. Comment on that era from Dr. Oswald Bayer, great Luther scholar. If if you're going to read any theologian of Luther, um, I would recommend him. So, (laughs) Luther was a man of his time, an unstable time. By the point in his life when he wrote the 1530 preface, significant events had unfolded that reinforced ever so strongly that the Gospel itself was at stake. Between the time of the September Testament, in which Luther already had enemies, and then 1530, when he writes the second preface, Luther was forced to reckon with two significant challenges to both his message and the churches of his land that promoted the Gospel, the Ottoman Turkish threat and the papacy. So first, let's look at this Ottoman Turkish threat. You know, throughout the 1520s, Luther was not so much opposed to the Turks as to the papacy. <laughs> At one point, he even considered the Turks as God's rightful punishment on Christendom for failing to preach the gospel. As early as 1520, he referred to Rome as the true Turks, even, because of the havoc he accuses them of wreaking on Christendom. But plainly, Luther did not see the big deal or why the Ottoman Turkish Empire or Islam, would be a pressing concern in comparison to the clear threat to the faith that he saw coming out of Rome and the papacy. However, Luther was also realistic enough to understand that there are foreign political threats that naturally need to be taken seriously, and that the Ottoman Turks were potentially one of them. As this threat became ever more real and close to home, Luther openly and actively supported military action. Now, this change in his attitude from indifference to support of military action can all be justified, really, by Luther's theology of two kingdoms, where God grants and bestows upon the government the authority to act for the protection and flourishing of its land's people. But, however, as the Ottoman-Turkish threat continued to advance into the 1530s, The situation became dire, and it became for Luther more than a matter of practical politics or theological justification of war. The warring Turks played a significant part within Luther's apocalyptic thought and theology of history as signs of the end times. This more or less is why Luther began to see this threat along the lines of the penultimate plague released by the sixth angel, Muhammad which he sees as the sixth angel in the book of Revelation. By the 1530s, with no sign of the Ottoman expansion decreasing, Luther held the conviction that this could be a sign of the end. However, it was not the ultimate sign. Luther's attitude toward the papacy has been a major subject of study for Luther's scholarship. In summary, Luther's disenchantment with the papacy was accelerated by key events. Through his disputes with Cardinal Thomas Cayetan, Jan Tetzel, Jan Eck, Sylvester Mazzolini, Luther realized that he had a fundamentally different understanding and position on the papacy than they did. Luther at first believed that the papacy held authority, but that this authority was valid within the context of its harmony with the church fathers, councils, clear reason, and importantly, scripture. This is what Luther scholar Scott Hendricks refers to as the principle of consensus, right? A consensus between all these things. But key events, such as the issuance of the Papal bull in June of 1520, which condemned Luther, this shocked Luther and moved him to have an even lower view of the Roman pontiff. Luther still held out on having a full-fledged attack on the papacy itself for some time, however, and even projected the blame of Romish errors onto those whom he referred to as the papal seducers, or those who surrounded and influenced the Pope in Rome, but not the Pope himself. But this hope that Luther still clung to, that perhaps the Pope could come to his senses, was forever shattered upon his excommunication in 1521. From this point onward, Luther would increasingly see the Pope as the Church's foremost enemy on earth. Historian David Whitford notes how Martin Luther used the word Endchrist, a German term for Antichrist, to refer to the papacy in 213 instances throughout his works, interestingly enough. This reference is perhaps most prevalent in Luther's commentaries on Psalms and on Genesis, both of which he writes in the 1530s, around the same time, well, shortly after he writes the second preface of Revelation. And so there are many examples of this, and you can just pick up a copy of Luther's works if you're interested in going through. Two things were pointed, (laughs) and I say pick up a copy of Luther's works like it's that easy to do. So (laughs) I uh, have them all digitally. I went on a payment plan through uh, Logos software, <laughs> uh, but sometimes uh, you can pick up different copies of them and, um, you know, different volumes contain uh, different things. Uh, for instance, volumes two and 13 have a lot of those anti-papal references if you're interested in, in uh, checking those out. So to conclude, the things we pointed out earlier in regard to Luther's development between 1522 and 1530, things we observed was that, you know, Revelation is the type of literature that would serve as the example of the exception to Luther's interpretive principle when engagement with allegory could not be avoided. And the reader of Scripture is now the passive recipient of God's Word rather than someone imposing fanciful meaning upon it. A legitimate question, though, is did Luther maintain maintain both of these interpretive principles in regard to his 1530 preface? Considering the novelty of this preface, the lack of any commentary and revelation that draws those particular parallels that Luther did for chapters 7 through 13, Luther is essentially doing what many could rightfully see as eisegesis. As stated earlier, while it is not the purpose here to render judgment right or wrong on what Luther did, it is helpful to see how Luther took the opportunity in in the supplanting this later preface to express his growing agitation and concern for what he saw, what he he was convicted of, that there are legitimate threats to the message that he and other reformers were at pains to hold fast to. And that concludes our episode on uh, Luther and the apocalypse, or Luther and his interpretation of the book of Revelation. It's a fascinating topic, fascinating history, turbulent times. And this is one of the reasons why I really have a passion for history and for studying people of the past. We have to see them in their time. We have to see them in their context. We have to appreciate how they addressed the world around them, how they responded to their circumstances, how they responded to those who disagreed with them. And I think it's this is uh, this study of Luther and his relationship with the book of Revelation, how it related to his career and his life um, is so fascinating. And so I thank you all for listening. Um, stay tuned for our future episodes. We'll have a our next episode um, where I'll be sharing some of my uh, thoughts on my experience with GIFAC uh, USA a group that I'm very excited about that I uh, am blessed to be a part of. I'll be having an episode on that in a few days. So God bless everyone. Take care. Um, And we will see you soon. Hi, and thank you for listening. This is Reverend Andrew Christensen again. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to check out our previous episodes of Doth Protest Too Much. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another streaming service that lets you rate and review our show, please do so. Five stars, one star, however you honestly feel, we can take it and would love and appreciate your feedback. Also, for any further questions or suggestions for our show, please email me at Podcast at gmail.com. God bless your day.